Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Dale Vasquez, joined with my co-host, Cheyenne Kaleem. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at Beyond Headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. This episode takes place just after Cheyenne and I attended the IMF World Bank annual meeting in Washington, D.C. with a delegation from the Young Diplomats of Canada. Our focus will be on exploring the impact that the IMF and World Bank have on member countries and youth around the world. To offer insight into these issues, we invited guests from the World Bank Group and scholars who attended these institutions' annual meeting. Our first guest is James Clark, advisor from the World Bank Group. James, thank you for coming onto the show. How are you doing today? Hi, hi, Dale. Hi, Shan. Really happy to be here. And yeah, it's a beautiful day here in Washington, D.C., so I, I'm doing well. And I, I guess one thing I just wanted to say is it's neat to be on Beyond the Headlines because when I went to University of Toronto, a lot of my classmates were were volunteering with Beyond the Headlines and producing shows and things like that. So it, it's neat to be on the show today. That's fantastic. No, thank you so much. We're really excited to have you on. We've prepared a couple of questions for you that our audience will be really excited to hear the answers to. So let me start with the first one. Can you tell us a little bit about your current role and how your career thus far prepared you for it? Yeah. Again, my name is James Clark. I'm an advisor at the World Bank Group in Washington, D.C. And here I work for Canada's member of the board of directors of the bank. So the bank is a publicly owned institution. Its shareholders are member governments. And Canada is a is a shareholder in the bank. We own about, you know, 2.5% of the shares. And that gives us a seat on the bank's board. So my boss, whose title is an executive director, approves bank financing for, for development projects in, in developing countries, looks at the bank's policies, where it wants to do more work. And I support her on a range of files. And there's a small team of other Canadians here. In terms of my background, I've mostly worked for the government of Canada. I'm from British Columbia originally, and I went to to Western for business, and then I went to University of Toronto to do a master's of public policy. I was in the Naval Reserves briefly for three years, which is a great experience. And then I joined the government of Canada through a program called the Advanced Policy Analyst Program, which introduced me to the, the public policy world in, in government of Canada. Within government of Canada, I've worked uh, mostly at the Department of Finance, but also at Public Safety Canada and also at Global Affairs Canada. I also took a brief stint in the private sector working at a management consulting company called CPCS Transcom, working on infrastructure projects in in West Africa, mostly around economic and financial analysis. And now I'm here for three years. I've I've been at the bank for, for 14 months and I'm here till August, 2024. So I've been in the role for about 14 months, really enjoying it so far. Wow, that's good. Well, you know what? I'm happy that you're enjoying it. And it sounds like you've had a really exciting career. I mean, naval reserves, private sector consulting, that's that's a lot of really great stuff. For next question, I want to pass it on to Cheyenne. So take it away, Cheyenne. Our second question for you, James, is how did the World Bank's loans, credits, and grants impact young people around the world? And what measures could it take to further improve its outcomes in that space? 
Great. So I should probably step back, and I, I should have said it in my introduction, but just maybe explain briefly what the World Bank Group is. It's a development lending institution. So we were founded in 1944 alongside the International Monetary Fund, which is across the street. And the the two institutions, they're, they're often called the Bretton Woods Institutions because they were they were founded at the Bretton Woods Conference in, 1990, in 1944. They, the World Bank provides loans to, to developing countries to address poverty reduction and improve uh, income inequality in those countries. And we've got various component parts that make up the World Bank Group. We've also got a private sector lending arm called the International Finance Corporation and a guarantee issuer called Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency. So, But the best way to think of us is a, we're a bank, we're a financial institution that is owned by governments and we lend to developing countries for, for poverty reduction. What I'd say about the getting to the, the question around our, our financing's impact for young people, I think the first thing I'd say is that bank has a what's called a country-driven model. So we, we really work through our client country governments and through their systems. And we need to support their development objectives. So if Gabon in Central Africa says that they want to do more around biodiversity and protecting their forests, that's something that the bank should be starting to structure projects around to support. Uh, so we really, like country ownership in our projects is really important. So the first thing I'd say is that countries have to say that youth is an important component if they want projects to be around that. But you know, the d demographic pressures in many developing countries mean that it's it's just natural that you would want to focus on youth, focus on improving their, their human capital. About 20 to 25 percent of our lending is in education and healthcare, sort of what I would call the sort of core human capital type work. Both affect youth, but but probably the education component more more so. Something I've really learned in the sort of 14 months I've been here is that I mentioned demographic pressures, but just the number of young people that are graduating high school in many developing countries is just, it's enormous. And I know that developing country governments are often under a lot of pressure to create jobs and find opportunities for this demographic pressure coming up. And if they don't, we see, you know, revolutions and, and instability in these countries. So it's a real imperative for a lot of countries to to grow their economies, but also to make sure that their, their youth populations have the skills and education they need. At the same time, we're not always successful. I, I mentioned Gabon. I, I'm working on a project there right now, reviewing a project there right now. And Gabon has 38% youth unemployment, you know, which is like, it's often high in sub-Saharan Africa, youth unemployment, but that is like exceptionally high. So that's a real imperative, I think, to do more in that area. So our projects often, there'll be an education. They can be run the gamut from primary school education to tertiary. Like a lot of projects we've seen of late have been around skills for employment, we might, we would call it, you know, tertiary educate, polytechnic education, things like that. So the bank does a lot in the education space. And I think that's how we most primarily impact youth. How we could do better? I think we could do a better job at listening to the voices of youth. I mentioned that country-driven model, and it's really that we, we, you know, we listen to our clients who are borrowing money from us for development projects. And if the clients don't put youth perspectives as part of that, they don't include that in their, their development vision, we maybe don't hear it. So I think there could be other ways that the institution could, could listen to the voices of youth and try to integrate those into our development programming and into our policies as they affect our lending. Now, that's a really fascinating answer. Thank you for being so thorough in, in really explaining what the World Bank does, how its credits and loans can impact young people around the world. You already started to touch on this next question, but I'm really curious to hear more about the World Bank's priorities, especially the policy areas that you think the World Bank should focus on 
either reinforcing an existing policy area or focusing on something new? I think a bit of two things, something new and then more of an existing thing that we do. I think the first thing I'd touch on is around global public goods, or increasingly we're calling them global challenges. It's been a topic of a lot of discussion. I mean, I think the bank wrote a paper on it in 27, 2007, sorry, talking about how we need to focus more development resources on, on global public goods. Often, you know, climate change is held up as one, biodiversity, pandemic preparedness, pretty relevant one in the last few years, and then, and then migration and particularly forced migration. You know, like we've seen countries in the Middle East, like Jordan hosting a hundred of thousands of Syrian refugees and, and borrowing on their own balance sheets, those governments to support those refugees. So they're they're really doing a global public good in hosting refugees and, and hopefully supporting them well with you know, health and education and their basic services. So this is an agenda that I think is gaining momentum. We heard a lot about it at our last annual meetings, which were in mid-October, so like less than a month ago. The United States and Germany and the, the G7 more broadly, of which Canada is a part, is, is starting to encourage bank management to think more about global public goods. And a lot of that comes down to thinking about our, our mission and vision and how it fits around that. Thinking about the incentives that we have around client countries, you know, what, what incentives do they have to borrow for a project that doesn't totally benefit them, where there's, you know, positive externalities that, that are global and not national or, or regional. And then we just need to think about, I mentioned that country-driven model, you know, if, if countries don't have global public goods as part of their development agenda in our current structure, we maybe don't pay as much attention as we should. So we need to think about our operational model and our, our financial model as, as they relate to global public goods. Another thing that we talk a lot about in our office is how a country finances development in their territory. And in advanced economies, you know, we largely rely on the private sector and tax revenue to do things. You know, we're not, the World Bank doesn't lend to Canada or Ireland or an advanced economy, but in a developing country, certainly donors and global financial institutions like the World Bank Group are big players in their, in their sort of the triangle, I guess, of development. Like there's donor resources, there's there's tax revenue, which is often quite underdeveloped in developing countries. And then finally, the private sector investment, which again, you know, there's a lot of real barriers to private sector investment in a place like, you know, Chad or, or particularly in a fragile or conflict affected country. So we often think about what are the various sources of, of funding for development and where can the bank play either directly in providing that financing or in sort of catalyzing others or improving the domestic capital markets so that governments can raise money from their local investor base. So that's something where I think the bank needs to do more. We provide a lot of financing on our own balance sheet. I don't think, I think we could be, I don't think we're bad at it, but I think we could be better at catalyzing other money into, into developing countries. And then I guess the last thing, on our own balance sheet, a priority for Canada that we've been pursuing for a long time. It's a bit jargony, but we call it balance sheet optimization. And another term could be capital efficiency. So it's the idea that the bank has capital from its shareholders, and then it uses that capital to think of that as like equity. It goes to the capital markets, it borrows more, sort of borrows about five times its equity, and then lends the total amount of resources out. We'd like the bank to be more efficient with its capital, to to really stretch its balance sheet, to, to maximize the amount of development financing available. And that's an agenda we're working with like-minded countries on right now to really push bank management to be ambitious in, in being efficient with the bank's own capital. Those are sort of three areas that I think we're making headway. That's fascinating. I'm going to pass it over to Cheyenne for our next question. Right. So for our next question, we're going to ask, what can the World Bank do to facilitate a global transition towards clean energy? And where do you see the opportunities for further development? So 
COP is coming up next week in Sharm el-Sheikh, and the bank's going to have a big presence there. I think I saw they're going to do 65 events, which, and many of them are on like very technical things. There was one about mangrove planting for climate adaptation, things like that. What can the bank do? I think the bank can... Okay, so stepping back, like the, the bank is, I believe, the largest source of climate finance. So that's funding for climate adaptation and climate mitigation. I believe we're the largest source in the world of that at about 40-ish billion last year. At the same time, we can probably do more. I mean, we're, we're still also financing some fossil fuels, not a ton. We don't finance any more coal power, thankfully. And our, our financing for natural gas power plants is quite low. And generally, it's focused on only the lowest income countries. One of the big challenges, I mean, everybody wants to do more renewables, including myself, but a challenge is clean baseload power. You know, like the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. And there are, there are other forms of renewables, but you need some clean baseload power, basically, that can support those renewables. So there's lots of solutions. There's hydropower, which is, is a clean source of baseload. There are other challenges with hydropower around flooding agricultural land and, and other sort of safeguards challenges with building large hydropower plants. Battery storage is a good solution as well. Well, that we're starting to finance more and the cost of battery storage is really coming down. And then I think another simple one is more grid interconnections. So let's say it's windy 500 kilometers away. If your grid is connected and you have wind power there, you can share that power out. So more connected electricity grids are certainly an opportunity. I could speak a bit to maybe my experience doing a, a development project in West Africa that I think is sort of another thing I think about a lot around electrification specifically in that in a lot of countries, and this isn't just a developing country issue, but in a lot of countries, there's there's real problems with their governance and their electricity sectors. Like sometimes they're heavily subsidizing the price of electricity, or there isn't competition in their electricity markets. So there's a lot more that can be done to reform electricity sectors, particularly in developing countries, to I think attract more private capital, more investment. I did a lot of work in the Gambia, which is a, a very small country near Senegal in West Africa. When I was at that consulting firm I mentioned, we were helping the government with thinking around reform in their electricity sector, thinking about governance questions in their sector. And the goal was to get more renewables into their grid and to improve their interconnections with Senegal. And that was just sort of in, in microcosm, some of the things I, I've been talking about. But just, I think, you know, you look at, if we want to go to electric vehicles, if we want to electrify more things that are currently fossil fuels, we're going to need a massive investment in electricity generation and then also in the transmission and distribution to move it around. So I think that's where the bank can play, both on the direct financing role, on the mobilizing private investment, and then also just improving the enabling environment and just sort of boring things like electricity tariff reform and things like that. Not boring. I, I find them really interesting, but maybe things that people don't think about as directly. And I've really spoken about electrification. There's tons of other aspects around climate. Like your question's really about transition, but I think another question that, that we talk about a lot in our constituency is around adaptation. Like it unfortunately seems kind of inevitable now that there's going to be some degree of warming in the planet over the next little while. I mean, The Economist had a cover this week that said, say goodbye to 1.5 degrees, which is sad that we're talking about that. At the World Bank, we represent the Caribbean as well. Canada, Ireland, and the Caribbean is our, our grouping under my, my boss, my executive director. So we hear a lot about climate change issues from the Caribbean perspective. You know, we heard a, a minister of finance from a Caribbean island talk about a bridge that they borrowed to build and then it was knocked down two years after it was built by a hurricane and now they have to borrow again to rebuild that bridge and they're still paying interest on the previous loan so adapting to climate change is a whole other question sorry it's not directly related to your energy transition question but it's just something i think i should mention
I think that that's a really important point to stress, the fact that the transition away from fossil fuels towards greener energy and broader green development is a multifaceted topic, one that can't be relegated to just electrification, to just green infrastructure. It really does involve a lot of layers and a lot of actors coming together to tackle this issue. And I think, yeah, that's some nuance that our listeners are definitely going to appreciate. So thank you for that. So James, I'd now like to shift our conversation away from green energy and talk about labor for a little bit. How can the World Bank contribute to developing a more diverse and resilient workforce, especially as we pivot towards a post-COVID economic recovery? Great. Yeah. So I'll start with the diverse element and then I'll move to the resilient component. I think just on diversity first off, I mean, Canada is a big proponent of gender, integrating gender equality into our development program. We've had the the feminist international assistance policy for about five years now. And here at the bank, we've been very vocal about doing more around gender and making sure that our projects both identify gaps around gender equality and then also take steps to address them. So World Bank group gender strategy, I emphasize group because it doesn't just apply to our government lending. It also applies to our private sector lending aspects. The World Bank Group's gender strategy came into effect in 2016, and we were quite vocal about you know making sure that it was ambitious. We're gearing up for a new strategy, the development starting next year. And um, some of the things we're talking about now are just getting more granular around when we, you know, when we say that a project has gender effects, being a little more clear about how impactful. Yeah, you know, is it a very peripheral component? being addressed in the project, or is the project centrally a gender project? So one thing we're kind of looking at now is using the OECD, so the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, has these things called the gender markers, and they go zero to two. So it's sort of a scoring system for development projects, integration of gender. So right now, we're looking at maybe integrating those at the bank. And then the other thing I should talk about is what in the international development is usually called SOGI, which is Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. In Canada, we'd probably call it 2SLGBTQ issues. And their SOGI people are not integrated at all into the World Bank's gender strategy right now. We do very little on sexual orientation and gender identity. And I was at a presentation yesterday, actually, where there was an academic talking, and they said that if LGBTIQ people were better integrated into global society, I mean, some countries are better than others. I hope Canada is relatively a leader. I think some of the data would show we are. But if LGBTIQ people were better integrated into their societies, it would boost global GDP by about 1%. And 1% of global GDP is like the economy of Turkey or the Netherlands. So this could be really impactful. So this academic that was speaking to us said, we're staring into a global recession right now. And if we could improve inclusion, this would be a, an automatic boost. 1% of GDP, like that's enormous. Moving to the resilient component of your question, the pandemic's been terrible for education and, and learning losses are staggering. Like it's a tough time to be in development right now because so many poverty and development indicators are moving in reverse. And, you know, we had bad learning losses in Canada, and, and they're much worse in countries that didn't have internet connections or electricity at night, you know, things like that. Like, so learning losses are going to be a huge issue, and they are, represent a massive loss of human capital. So the bank is doing projects like sort of emergency education projects where we're providing financing to the public school system in a sub-Saharan African country to hire more teachers or have smaller classes or things like that. So I think that's sort of a around resilience, trying to catch up with the learning losses from the pandemic. And then I think the last thing I talk about around resilience of the workforce is around social protection, which is another sort of jargony development term. But it basically, like Canada, we have all these 
automatic shock absorbers when people lose their job. We have employment insurance or, or other benefits like that. So, and I know that there are issues in Canada with eligibility for employment insurance, but we have a lot of these automatic stabilizers that can kick in and support people's income when the unexpected happens to them. Developing countries have less fiscal capacities. So they often don't have systems like this. So if you lose your job, you rely on family or you forego meals or things like that. So we're doing a lot of work and we've been since the start of the pandemic around social protection. So setting up like conditional or unconditional cash transfer regimes and just trying to sort of mitigate some of the human capital impacts of the pandemic. And I think that one of the big challenges of these programs when we set them up is their sustainability once the four or five years of World Bank financing ends? Is the government that received that money going to pick it up with its own resources? And it's a challenge getting countries to keep these programs sustainable. But if they do, if they do plan to, I think we want to show that those projects resulted in sort of gains, like make the case that this is a good investment for those countries to continue funding. And another thing, just whenever we set these programs up, we have a lot of targets around vulnerable groups. Certainly, there's always a gender target. You know, 50, 60% of beneficiaries have to be women. But then we go deeper, you know, female-headed households. There's often a target or people with disabilities, you know, a target that a disproportionate number of the beneficiaries will be, you know, vulnerable people that probably need that support the most. I think that that's a really important discussion to begin having about what it's going to take, both at a national level within the countries whose people are affected the most, but also at a multinational level. Then getting IGOs like the World Bank involved in equitable financing strategies so that we can actually support these countries. But I'm really curious, before we head on to the next question, what does the World Bank's outlook look like on a post-COVID recovery? How many years is it going to take? How much money is it going to take? Just how bad is the situation currently? Well, I think we were all feeling more optimistic a year ago, let's say, of, you know, the deployment of vaccines and uh, just sort of the, the global growth forecasts were pretty rosy at the time. And I mean, I don't work at the IMF, but I certainly know that they poured cold water on a lot of those ideas at the last meeting, you know, the meetings three weeks ago. There's a view, I believe, that there's going to be a, a mild global recession, maybe more or less mild in, in various countries. Inflation's running really hot right now. So there's monetary tightening in a lot of the advanced economies. And I think that something we, you know, as Canadians or as people from advanced economies, we don't really think about spillovers that has on developing countries because, you know, the US dollar, the euro, to a lesser extent, the Canadian dollar, these are kind of, they're often called like hard currencies, like they're the global currencies. I mean, less the Canadian dollar, but uh, dollars and euros certainly are widely used. And when interest rates go up in advanced economies, you often have uh, a flight of, of money leaving developing countries. You have portfolio outflows from developing countries. And what it also means is that the borrowing costs of developing countries go up. So in addition to sort of staring down a recession incoming, we're also looking at potential emerging market debt crisis. We're a lot of countries are going to struggle to refinance debt. I mean, debt loads were already high before the pandemic, and they got much higher during the pandemic for, I think, justified reasons. People sort of are governments financing emergency measures through the pandemic. But now we're stuck with the bill to some extent. And you've seen efforts to restructure debt in a few countries. There's this thing called the G20 Common Framework for Debt Restructuring. Right now, there's three countries in it, Zambia, Ethiopia, and Chad. And the only one that's really made progress so far is Ethiopia. And it's just, it's a really 
tough environment right now to restructure debt. So that's where all the creditors come together to negotiate a reduction in that debt load. And what you are seeing more and more is like China is a huge development lender that it wasn't maybe 20 years ago. And commercial lenders play a much larger role, you know, at an all-time high compared to like the in the 1980s, they were also a very large lenders. But the presence of China and commercial creditors really makes restructuring harder compared to the traditional, like Paris, what's called the Paris Club, which is a group of like-minded countries that, you know, we usually see eye to eye with the United States or France on debt issues. But there's an increasing dose of, I guess, geopolitics around debt issues. So sorry, I went a bit all over the place on your question there, but I, it's, it's a really challenging environment. And I think the overall outlook is much more pessimistic than it was probably a year ago coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, it's definitely a hard pill to swallow, but it also helps contextualize really the situation that we're in. And it provides a lot of really helpful information to listeners. I'm going to turn it over to Cheyenne to ask the next question. Go ahead, Cheyenne. All right. Now, I think we should focus our attention to what youth in particular can do to help. So I think what I would ask James next is what advice would you give Canadian youth who want to improve outcomes for their peers and future generations, especially through global macroeconomic and financial stability? So this is a this is a tough question, <laughs> but it's but it's a good one. I guess I'll sort of return to something I said in the last question. But right now is a pretty challenging time geopolitically. There's a lot of tension, not just around like the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but around food prices, energy prices, tensions with China, around a whole range of areas. So it's a you know people talk about the decline of multilateralism, and you're certainly seeing that in some forums like the World Trade Organization. I think at this institution. There's good cooperation on sort of technical issues, on governance issues. There are areas where we'll disagree with other countries, with non-like-minded countries, but I've sort of been pleasantly surprised at being able to find some common ground on certain issues with what I might call sort of non-like-minded countries. I think thinking about who we are, where we are as Canadians, like we're a, we're a small open economy in a global system and... A lot of our prosperity is really tied up in multilateralism and particularly around trade. You know, we're an exporting country. We rely maybe more than many other countries on, on exports. It's in our interest to have a, a sort of a stable world. So we're heading into a period where maybe some of the foundations of our prosperity are, are questioned a little bit. I mean, the Minister of Finance, Minister Freeland, had a really interesting speech that she made at the Brookings Institution a few weeks ago when she was down here in Washington, just talking about friendshoring and trying to have you know, like-minded democracies trade more with each other and integrate their economies relative to other less like-minded countries. I guess, sorry, getting to what youth can do. <laughs> I wanted to sort of set the stage on sort of where I, I sort of see our, the current geopolitical environment. But I think youth are... I'm 33. I'm not sure if I'm a youth anymore, but I think like youth are our next generation of leaders. Like they're going to be doing the job, like they're incoming in all the leadership roles in Canada and demographics are really on our side or their side. Again, still not sure I'm a youth or not, but I think the demographics are good for youth to sort of assume the helm of leadership of Canada in the corporate world and government in civil society. So I think it's really worth keeping a global mindset. I mean, remembering where Canada is, a small open economy. And I think like I was able to travel quite a bit growing up. I studied abroad, I went on exchange. I think so traveling, I think studying abroad gives you so much perspective on both the country you're a guest in, but also on your home country. I think you you see things that work better. Maybe in Canada, you see things that are done better in other places. And I think it's a travel and I think particularly traveling for studying or work versus tourism, you kind of maybe have a deeper impact on a place, particularly tourism. You can often 
you know, go to some resort somewhere and talk to very few locals and sort of leave after a nice experience, but maybe not knowing a ton about the place you were just in. So I think both I would encourage like tourism that really engages more with the, the host culture, but also I think travel either for work or for education really gets you a good perspective on what's going on in other countries. And I think the education or work travel, maybe you build more relationships too that you might continue to have. So I think trying to do that is advantageous. Speaking another language is really important. I mean, I'm from Western Canada. I've been working to learn French for a long time. I'm still intermediate, but speaking another language gives you another perspective. I mean, I've traveled in West Africa and having sort of vaguely functional French certainly made me appreciate more and be able to, you know, chat with the guy selling chicken on the side of the street, you know, and things like that. So I think learning a language, French or Spanish, are probably good options for, for us as Canadians in the Western Hemisphere. But, you know, learning a, a second or third or more languages, I think is advantageous. It's great. But yeah, I think just keeping, I think what I'm generally saying is try to have a global mindset because as Canadians, I think a lot of our prosperity is tied up in things that happen beyond our borders. So we need people that have a mindset that understands those issues and can think about solutions. And I think as Canadians, we like to think of ourselves as like solution oriented and people that bring a solution to a problem. So I think training yourself to have that global mindset and those relationships and experience like helps you be part of the solution. Yeah, that's a lot of good stuff. And you heard it here, folks. James is promoting Explore for all of our Canadians that are listening to this podcast. So definitely take advantage of that. I love it. This is a lot of really good insights. But now on the topic of health, how do you think that the World Bank could contribute towards improving global health, especially in low-income countries? We do quite a bit already, I would say. Yeah, we're a big lender for health. I believe it's 13% of our lending, 13, 14% of our lending is for health systems. And again, that works through government systems. So we're pretty active in, in health. And we also have something I didn't mention at the beginning, but we also manage quite a few, they're called trust funds or financial intermediary funds. So they're off our balance sheet, but it's where donors will give funding for various sort of special purpose funds. There's the Global Fund for AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria, for example, that does projects focused on that. And what these projects really do is they provide co financing alongside the bank. So yeah, we're quite active in health. I mean, at the end of the day, we are still a bank. So we charge interest and things like that. So there has to be a sort of social return on investment, I think, for a lot of the things that we do. But there typically is. There doesn't have to be necessarily a financial return, but there has to be a, I guess, yeah, I use that term social return on investment. There has to be a, a rationale for countries to borrow to finance this. But, you know, there's often a lot of marginal gains in, you know, improving developing country health systems. And it, so the, the impact of the marginal dollar is pretty high, I think, in, in many countries and probably is even higher after two and a half years or three years of COVID. Definitely. And I like that point about the bank focusing on that social return because it really sets it apart from other financial institutions that are pursuing profit maximization and not necessarily in a negative manner, but obviously it sets the priority that the World Bank is an institution that's trying to create positive social impact. So Cheyenne, why don't you go ahead and close us off with the last question? For sure. So for our last question, what can the World Bank do to make essential medicines more accessible to those who need them? Good question. I have to admit, I don't have a ton of experience around medicines. I certainly know there are a lot of very tricky intellectual property issues that get contentious quickly around um, IP sharing and things like that. I do know that in the context of the COVID pandemic, we have spent a lot of money on vaccine manufacturing and personal protective equipment manufacturing, things like that. 
including through our private sector operations. I believe we financed a vaccine manufacturing facility in South Africa, for example. So it's something we can do both on the supply side. We can use our financing for private sector firms to support manufacturing capability, cold chain storage and distribution, things like that. But then on the demand side, our public sector financing arm can provide money to countries, you know, actually buy those medicines. And I believe there's been a real explosion in the growth of generics and sort of lower cost drugs. Like India, I believe, is a huge manufacturer of generics, which often are significantly cheaper per pill or per dose or per patient. So, And that's something actually we do talk about sometimes is what we call like South-South trade. So the idea that two developing countries might trade with each other. So, you know, Tanzania buying medicines from India is, well, hopefully good for both of their economies, Tanzania on the human capital side and India on the exports side. But yeah, it's, I can't say so much on the intellectual property side, but I certainly know that we can help both on the supply of those medicines and around financing to meet their demand. Thank you so much for that. It's unfortunate, to be honest, that medicine are so caught up in the legal troubles of IP and corporate competition. Thank you, James, for coming out. We'd really love to have you back on. Yeah, well, happy happy to. And it's, uh, as I said at the beginning, it's really neat to be on Beyond the Headlines because I, I remember a lot of my, my, yeah, the classmates recording sessions of it and talking about articles they were producing, things like that. So it's, it's kind of neat, you know, how long has it been? 10 years after I went to grad school <laughs> to be on Beyond the Headlines. Absolutely. So I think that a lot of people that are listening to this podcast that work at Beyond the Headlines right now, they're going to be excited to hear your voice <laughs> and hear about your connection to it. To all of our listeners, that was James Clark joining us from the World Bank in Washington, D.C. Up next, we have a special pair of guests coming all the way from Australia to share their perspective as youth on the ground at the IMF World Bank annual meeting. Here are Kirlin NG and Marco Golubovac, scholars from Global Voices. Kirlin and Marco, thank you for coming on the show. How are you doing today? Thanks yeah, so much thanks. for having us. <laughs> you, you go, Marco. We're too excited. That's why we both want to That's speak. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks so much for having us. We're so excited to be here. And we're just really, really grateful that we can share our Australian perspective. Yeah, we're super excited to have you. So thank you for making the time. I know that right now it's early in the morning for all of you. For all of our listeners, there is a 15-hour time difference between us here in Toronto. And I believe the two of you are in Sydney, correct? I'm in Sydney. And I'm in Melbourne. There you go. So yes, big time difference, but we're making it work. So to get us started, I'm hoping, Carolyn and Marco, that you could tell us a little bit about yourselves. What's Global Voices? How did you join it? Give us the rundown. So a bit about myself. I'm a fourth year business information systems student, and I study at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. And about Global Voices, Global Voices is a non-for-profit organization that aims to develop young people's policy writing skills and international uh, diplomacy skills. And how I joined was my university offered a scholarship to go to the IMF and World Bank conference and the organizers are Global Voices. So it's Global Voices that enables this trip. That's it from me. I'll pass on to Marco. Caroline, I think you really answered the question about Global Voices. So I won't add anything else about that, but I'll just touch on who I am. So my name is Marco. I'm from the University of Melbourne. I'm a second year Bachelor of Commerce student and I'm majoring in finance and marketing. All right. Thank you too for that. I'm curious, Marco, so was it the same for you insofar as you got a scholarship from your university? Was it through Global Voices? Who's financing who? 
I think in all cases, the university will finance it. So they like act as a sponsoring organization and then they just let Global Voices take care of the rest of it, which is pretty cool. The level of trust I haven't seen anywhere else in just kind of giving them the money and letting them run with it and and, and put together a really fantastic program, one that allows kids um, and, you know, other, like young people to experience things that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. Well, no, and that's an excellent point. I think that there are a lot of universities here, especially that could take advantage of similar funding schemes because it's not cheap to try to go to these conferences. You might be the most capable, well-spoken, intelligent person in the world, but if there are financial barriers in the way, you're not going to get anywhere. So <laughs> it's honestly amazing that your universities have been able to fund this experience. And I think it's a big eye-opener and call to action for Canadian institutions to begin doing the same. I'm curious, what would you say was the best interaction that you had with a stakeholder or just really anybody at the annual meeting? Oh, uh, I know I've got one. Go for it. <laughs> there were many. There were so many. The best one is probably when Caroline and I were walking through the, the tunnel that connects the two IMF buildings and we ran into Christine Lagarde, who is the European Central Bank president and before that was the director of the IMF. Um, and we got to take a quick selfie with her and that was just awesome. I remember I asked the, her bodyguard because she was sort of had like 360 like security around her. I was like, can I approach her and take a photo? And the bodyguard said to me, oh, well, you don't ask me, you have to ask her. And I just said, you know, as long as you don't tackle me, <laughs> I managed to get a laugh out of the bodyguard. And so that, I was very happy about that. And then there was another one where, Caroline, you were sitting next to me, I think, or just one row over at the executive director's like round table meeting with CSO organizers. And I said, g'day to this guy who sat next to me. And <laughs> I was like playing up the Aussie accent for him only to find out later that he was like the executive assistant or something to the executive director for Italy. And so he was seated <laughs> directly behind that executive director and was keeping notes for him and like sort of tracking what he was up to. And he was just sitting next to this like Aussie kid who was just like mucking around <laughs> and like asking him questions and like peering over his shoulder because I got to see his notes. So that was really cool as well. Okay, oh my God, it sounds like you were this close to starting an international accident with this poor guy from Italy. <laughs> I mean, how, did, he, did he at least take it well? How did that go? Just sort of like laughed or something. Oh, um, and then he, the executive director started speaking, was answering a question. And I got a message on my phone because our coordinators were outside the room. And I looked at my phone and there was a photo of me that they'd taken because the camera had, was pointed at this executive director and I was seated right behind him. So there I was photobombing in the background <laughs> of this executive director's little portion of his speech or, or question answer. Definitely two really memorable experiences to write home about. <laughs> Can you imagine just going down a hallway and then taking a picture with Lagarde? That's that's wild. That's the kind of thing that you hear on Reddit at most. But to think that it happened in real life, it's pretty wild to say the least. <laughs> Carolyn, we haven't heard from you. Memorable moments, funny stories. What do you have to share with us? Yeah, I think just touching on, you know, Marco's and I and I mine awesome experiences. I think also I was able to meet some local university students who were able to go through their university. One of them was 
George Washington University and just speaking to them and hearing about you know how they got here and what they're interested in and what they're studying and you know we like linked up on Instagram and saying oh you know if you come to Australia you know visit us <laughs> and I'm um, just kind of meeting other young people and kind of seeing what they're like because I think especially with COVID you know being isolated for that you know long period of time during lockdown it can be hard to actually experience what it's like to meet other young people from different nations and it really I think opened my worldview on you know I never met I didn't think I'd ever met a Canadian person before <laughs> so well, there we're you glad go. to be the first people that you meet hopefully you have a good impression of Canada after having yes. met us <laughs> yes were we as nice as you thought we would be yes you know I didn't have any impression oh any like expectations first but you guys were were super nice and I yeah I'm, I want to go to Canada and Look you guys should that. come to Australia. <laughs> oh, hundred percent! Are you kidding me? That's definitely on my bucket list. It's top three for sure. So hopefully, yeah. you know, once the economy starts to recover, because uh, from what I've seen, prices like ticket prices to Australia—they're uh, not easy to come by. <laughs> so I'd like to shift the conversation now to a little more serious topic, particularly the gaps that we all came across when we were at the annual meeting. I think for me, something that lacked a bit of attention was on cybersecurity. Even though there was that session on data privacy, I feel just overall in terms of all those IT-related meetings, it was kind of glossed over in a sense, as in the, the focus wasn't there. I think what, like with in terms of the digital payments, they were talking about financial literacy and how that's important in order to keep people cyber safe but in terms of the actual technical component of the IT infrastructure for developing nations especially because the World Bank has a global fund for cybersecurity that was launched in 2021 and one of its aim was to help build the cyber resilience of developing nations so I think I would have liked to hear a bit more about that I think I'll pass on to Marco. Thanks Caroline. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. And cyber is a really big area, especially in Australia right now. So we've just recently had two very big data breaches, like hacks of Medibank and Optus. So Optus is a telecommunications provider. Something like half of all of Australia's data has been breached across these two breaches. And even recently, Department of Defence has, has disclosed that they sort of had a cyber attack earlier in the year as, as well. And so it is a really topical area. And I think that, like Caroline, it did feel a bit glossed over. Another point that really popped out for me when I was thinking about this question, sort of three steps for like dealing with climate, like the big focus has always been on like mitigation and adaptation, which is like reducing your emissions and and then later on dealing with the catastrophes and the changes, like adapting your crops and um adapting your like infrastructure but the third component of dealing with climate change migration hasn't really been addressed I think because they view migration as the very last potential thing that could happen when really it's something that is happening today like right now and especially Australia as a as a country has a really big responsibility over its smaller Pacific nation partners in the region 
And a lot of these countries are dealing with rising sea levels that are threatening their island homes, as well as increased instances of climate catastrophes like storms and flooding, or even droughts, the increased prevalence of droughts in Australia as well. And so this causes increased rates of migration. And something that, you know, I tried to gain a better understanding of with the people that we got to meet and the questions that I got to ask was what are the policy frameworks globally that are in place to deal with these increased waves of migration that are coming and that are happening today? And I didn't really get a solid answer. (laughs) I can't say whether this is reflective of the entire World Bank Group or the entire IMF's policies, but from the people that I got to meet in the sessions that I got to attend, I didn't feel like I had a strong enough answer to that question. So you're definitely right there. There were certainly a lot of issues that didn't get the amount of attention that we would have liked to hear. We've obviously mentioned cyber. We've discussed, obviously, matters of climate change as well. One thing that really stood out to me, and this is something that you can speak to, Carolyn, as an IT specialist, is CBDCs. This was definitely one of the focal points on Friday at the conference. And what really stood out to me was this almost acceptance that the loss of privacy for the provision of credits and the efficiency that this type of new currency could introduce would be welcome by consumers, citizens, countries, because as the panelists put it, this was really the future of not just banking, but obviously consumption. And so the fact that privacy was almost thrown out the window not given the attention that it should have been given, really concerned me. Carolyn, what was your reaction to this issue? When you were mentioning that, I was immediately thought of another session on data privacy that an American lady was speaking about. And she was referring to a US act that was basically saying that big tech companies really have a lack of accountability in any harm they cause. And she was referring to one case where a young teenage lady in the UK was found to be deceased and a big impact was because of social media and the negative impacts it had on her. And so I think there's a lack of accountability and and how you're saying with data privacy, you know, in terms of people. I think the human aspect within all of these, you know, big topics is, I feel like sometimes forgotten. And so I think it's really important to think about how it's affecting each of us and the rights we have as, you know, for our, our data, for our, our lives, really, in general. So we've got to keep pushing. <laughs> no, absolutely. And the fact that these decisions that are taken at such high levels have such a profound impact on youth, especially, is deeply concerning. And I think that Cheyenne's next question can help us shed a little bit more light on this. So go ahead, Cheyenne. One thing that as you were talking about the things that were missing, I think one thing that was really missing was the youth perspective and what youth could do to help address global policy. And that wasn't spoken about too much in the conference. So I wanted to ask you guys, what do you think youth can do to shape policy agenda within their home countries and international forums like the IMF and World Bank annual meetings? There was a human rights session that we attended one morning. And I remember that session in particular because we all sort of stood up and lined up and we all started asking our questions one by one. And some of us came back for seconds as well to ask another question. And I remember that the presenter sort of commented, Australia is well represented in the room today because it was just us asking questions over and over and over again. I think that's where you start. You give young people a, a platform to ask their questions and 
that's probably the best way to know what is on their minds. It's just to listen to them. I think actually our one of our fellow Australian delegates asked that question to one of the speakers on climate change. And his response was to advocate in your own country to push politicians to, in this case, have a bigger stance on climate change. And so I think with these big issues, I think it's important to kind of take it take a step back and think, you know, sometimes it can be overwhelming, but if we just start small in our local community and do what we can, I think that's better than, you know, not doing anything at all and feeling helpless. So I think, yeah, just doing what you can. And I think backing yourself, especially as a young person, I think sometimes it can often be perceived that, you know, we don't know, we, we don't have that much life experience or experience in general. And sometimes the credibility of what we're talking about isn't that maybe great or valid, but I think we're all learning. And just as long as, you know, you believe what you say. And, and I think also with support, kind of groups like this, you know, supporting young people, us having this dialogue, I think hopefully it will help someone listening out there to maybe feel a bit more empowered today. <laughs> I'm curious, though, for everybody here, Cheyenne, Carolyn, Marco, the fact that this is happening, and by this I mean the experiences that we're having as, you know, a very small sample of youth within our respective countries, the fact that this is happening at such a small level, what do you think that we can do collectively as delegates that have been on the ground to actually get more people involved? I think the, the first of all, going back to your original point, uh, starting locally is really important. Just like telling your friends, telling people you know, telling the people at your school. And also, like we were talking about earlier, you know, in Canada specifically, there's not many opportunities uh, like this through your school. And, you know, that financial barrier might be something that deters a lot of people from applying to this. So if we can urge more you know, schools want institutions to have sponsorship programs like these. That's one thing that could really have more people be interested in this type of thing because there'll be less barriers to actually participating. So I think that's definitely really important. And then obviously working within your community to promote these is also very important. Absolutely. I think that's really well said, Cheyenne. Carolyn, Marco? Yeah, I was thinking in terms of social media, even though we're not physically yeah I'm not in Canada you're not in Australia we're we're not in the same location but just supporting each other like through what we can say over online or LinkedIn social media platforms because I think if we see say an opportunity that we think that you guys be interested in then we can share it with you guys like if I hear something or Marco hears something and then you know there's something we see that we can collaborate on I think yeah staying connected is what I'm trying to say and building that relationship to continue to support each other as uh, young people. I think being really vocal in your support for people who might otherwise not have a voice, don't have, you know, unrestricted access to their internet if their government is monitoring. I think it's important to be their voice for them when you can. And Shane, yeah, you mentioned the funding aspect of it. I was really surprised to find that I was like one of the only people from my university to go on this or to even know about this opportunity. My uni is a, a pretty big one. There's a lot of university students, I think something like 100,000. <laughs> and so I was just really surprised that there aren't more opportunities like this and that they're not more well known about. And so I think as delegates who went on this trip, it's our responsibility to talk about it and try and get out there as much as we can and, and push young people 
in that direction. I completely agree. And I think that, Sherilyn, you made a really good point. Leveraging social media. I began as a delegate with the YDC, I think, a year and a half ago, give or take, because I came across a LinkedIn post. And it wasn't one that was necessarily sent to me. It was a topic that somebody reshared, and it really caught my attention. So even if we're not sharing opportunities directly with people in our close networks, so long as we're broadcasting these opportunities widely, we have the potential of making a really profound impact and connecting people with the right opportunities, both experientially, like what the YDC is doing, but also at a financial level, if we're able to find scholarships like Global Voices is able to offer, then we can really make that difference of putting the right people with the right opportunities for them to have the impact that they're looking to make at an international, domestic, and even communal level. So these are some really good points to take home. And I think that it's important to stress them for youth that are not just looking for ways to get involved, but really ways to make an impact. So thank you so much to you, Carolyn, and to you, Marco, for coming out bright and early in the morning. This has been an incredible opportunity for us to be able to not just reconnect, but also engage in meaningful conversations about our experiences at the annual meeting, the lessons that we learned. Any parting words from you, Carolyn or Marco? Uh, oh my God. Come to Australia, yes. um, have a look at what's going on in our corner of the world. But obviously more importantly, it's really important to stay connected and keep sharing and reposting. Yeah, no, I think we want to say thank you so much for having the opportunity to meet up in Washington, D.C. and now here. And we hope that dialogue and the relationship continues to grow and we hope we can empower more young people and yeah as you said see more young people in these kind of international forums and to echo what Marco said yes please come to Australia (laughs) we're not getting paid to do this but (laughs) we just you know we want we want um more young people or anyone really in general to to explore the world and see what's down under Well, thank you so much, Carolyn and Marco, for coming out. It was a pleasure to have you on the show, and we hope to hear back from you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Well, that wraps up our show for this week. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. We were joined today by James Clark, Carolyn NG, and Marco Golubovac. Many thanks to them for coming out to the show to discuss the IMF and World Bank's impact on member countries and youth. Today's show was produced by myself, Dale Vasquez, along with my co-producer Cheyenne Kaleem. The views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of our show, be sure to check out podcasts of all of our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at Beyond Headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.